Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you'll hear from the pioneers and innovators in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, regenerative, profitable and innovative. And we can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag, brought to you by Tamania Angus and Ace Radio, is your next big step in that direction. On the Raw Ag podcast in this episode, we're going to have a look at the energy sector. And I've got Justin McNabb here from Blue Pool Energy to have a chat about Australia's energy sector. Obviously, there's been some energy issues in the media recently. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. So, Justin, whereabouts are you from and where do you hail from originally? Tom, I grew up in Western Victoria and sort of grew up and went to school in Ballarat and then went down to university in Melbourne as a 18 year old and pretty much stayed in Melbourne from then on working you know yeah, so what did career. you study in Melbourne uh, I studied a, I did a commerce degree and an arts degree at Melbourne University yeah and uh, you didn't start out really in energy did you went into banking at the start no Tom I started uh, as, a, as a young graduate in the banking sector yeah um, like a lot of young people this was the early 90s which yep. seems like a long time ago and sort of morphed into the energy banking space uh, some years later. So that's where you got your experiences um, from to become an energy, you know, industry consultant from banking first, was it sort of yes, cut I, teeth in that? I was, I was a young banker at the time when the Victorian electricity privatisation occurred and I was then working for a major Japanese bank, the Sumitomo Bank, and I just got involved in the financing of a number of the major um, global utilities who came to Australia to try and buy up a number of the privatised assets. And from then on, I largely specialised in the energy sector for the next 20-odd years. Yeah, and so obviously being on the other side of the legislating, businesses come to you and put proposals to the bank, um, you know, you had to be very good at scrutinising the plan and the whole, what they were trying to do, what sort of things came across. Yeah, Tom, it's, it's probably surprising to perhaps some of your listeners and to people more broadly that the bank's particularly in specific industry sectors, have quite a lot of expertise in those areas because they are seeking to understand... They've got the, a bit of risk involved. They've got they? a lot of risk involved. <laughs> um, they put a lot of money into the sector. I think at the time I was banking, mostly we had exposures of probably $10 billion uh, from individual banks into the energy sector. So it was very important that the teams understood all of the issues that went into how and why you'd lend money to the sector and understanding the risks over these long-term exposures. Yeah, so and obviously you got to know lots of people. You had to, that's part yeah. of the job, I suppose, to um, make sure you know who to ring if you need some advice or, you know, someone to help you out or whatever or connect people up. Yes, I think as you became more senior in the sector and we had specific industry groups, I, I ran the energy business at National Australia Bank and later... The Asian energy business of the ANZ Bank and our job or the team's job was to get to know everyone in the sector that was relevant to the bank. So my role was to know all of the CEOs and CFOs and senior business development people of the major energy companies, yep. both in Australia and later right across Asia. So um, energy has become incredibly topical um, in <laughs> our has. society now, has. hasn't it? Um, because um, I suppose people's understanding of what is green isn't green anymore you know um, mm. I, I, I like to say that um, 
you know, every solution has a pollution. And, you know, in the early days of the combustion engine, when they put a combustion engine into a, into a horse-drawn wagon and called it an automobile, everyone was hailing it to be one of the greatest saviours of smell and pollution in the cities because the horse manure was all gone. Um, and Great, it's now... A different problem. And now we've got a different problem. Yeah, yeah. Massive problem. Well, yes. potentially a massive problem. So... Um, and it's, it's interesting, Tom, I think you make a good point, and... But I think what it's what is easy to forget is that the industrialization that's occurred globally has largely been as a result of access to large scale large quantities of cheap power. It, it could not have occurred without that. Um, and that power has historically globally come from coal. Um, now the burning of coal in a modern world is now seen to be less than attractive and for for good reason, I think. Um, but historically, there were not alternatives that were off scale and of the right um, cost that yeah. we could do anything about it. Yeah. And more recently, that has changed. And so, you know, we see people, I suppose, uh, what used to be a, a big pollution in our childhood, nuclear, all, mm. of, all of a sudden it looks green again. Well, it's always been green. Yeah. I, well, it um, has one carbon, but it had another little problem, didn't it, of yes. getting rid of uh, that dreadful um, yellow cake? Yeah, well, that's certainly a problem. Um, and I think we've never gone down a nuclear path in Australia, and we have, we have political um, imperatives that prevent us from doing that, and we have legislation to stop it. We're happy to export uranium to others mm. to, to use, but we haven't ever gone down that path. Um, and nuclear has been a driver of major economies. The French economy is largely... Electricity de France is largely run by nuclear. The UK and the US have had large nuclear installations, as have China, and parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, so, um, obviously, you know, you do hear that conversation that, well, nuclear is the solution to the carbon uh, emission issue in power, but it's probably not the silver bullet, is it? Uh Probably not now for Australia. We could have gone down that path, I think, a while ago. Um, nuclear has a couple of benefits. Generally speaking, nuclear power plants are very, very large. They are relatively clean, but they're very expensive to build and they take a long time to build, yep. um, particularly when you think of the um, political and social and um, environmental landscape that would need to be... And, of course, where to build them because no-one wants them in the backyard. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Having said that, the reasons that nuclear plants have generally gone wrong has not so much been by the operation of the plant. It's been from sort of third or extraneous factors. If you think of the, the most recent example was the Fukushima plant in north of Tokyo. It didn't go wrong because the plant went wrong. It went wrong because of the, the Great Eastern Earthquake and the subsequent uh, tsunami that engulfed part of the plant. Yeah, yeah. So just the... Um Obviously, in the recent in recent times, very recent in the last months, um, we've seen a huge um, change in power price fluctuations. And we tell have. us a little bit about how that power um, grid evolved and okay. how it all works. Yeah. Okay, Tom. But thank you. It might be useful just to give a broad overview of how the sector works. Yeah. And yeah. To put into context what is yeah, happening at great. the moment. That'd be great. Um, and your listeners probably know this, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. The the power, the electricity sector in Australia is largely divided into three components. There's power generation, which is the production of electricity. There's transmission and distribution, which are the large and small wires that ultimately connect your house to the, to the grid. And then there's retail, which is the third element, which are the people who send you your bill and they're the customer-facing mm -hmm. aspect of the market. 
and the generators, the people producing the electricity, um, take price risk on the sale of their power into the, the pool and the retailers on the other side take price risk on having to cover their clients' load by purchasing power from the pool. Yeah, okay. And something that people may not be as familiar with is that the price of electricity in Australia changes every five minutes. Um, every five minutes? So every five minutes. And so that comes through from an authority or...? Yeah, so the, the market is run by a group called AMO, the Australian Electricity Market Operator, and the way the, the, the pool market works is that AMO set every five minutes, and they do it in they do it half hour in six, five minute in intervals, they set in advance the amount of power they think will be needed to meet demand for the next period of time. Mm-hmm. And they, they have some a lot of forecasting tools around it, particularly around weather. Um, and they then call for bids from the generators to try and meet that demand. And that's known as a, a merit order bidding process we have in Australia. And quite simply, that is the generators will bid an amount of capacity that they're prepared to put into the market and a price at which they're prepared to do it. And the market operator then stacks those bids in what they call a merit order, a bit like an auction, and they stack those bids by price wow. until they hit a clearing price. And the clearing price then gets paid to everybody for that period of time. Yep. Okay. And historically... And overnight, we've had large coal-fired generators which run sort of 24 hours a day. And so they don't have much flexibility about how they operate. So, so they're, just, they're just churning the power out and taking the price. They're largely price takers. Yep. So they tend to bid low into the pool yep. to, in order to get dispatched. Uh, and, and so they can have security that they're going to be... Ge- um, that they're going to be dispatched. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and what has happened, particularly in times of higher demand the price clearing is generally in Australia from gas fire generation it's faster to start yep. it's, it's more flexible but it doesn't run all the time um, it only runs really when there's a need for it and it because it reflects the price of gas which is ultimately the most clear input to the cost of electricity the price of fuel it sets the price most often yeah okay and, and renewables here you go, go so renewables in that context because they can't predictably be dispatched you, you, you can't say with any certainty if you own a wind whether farm the sun's going to shine Correct. or whether the wind's going to blow yeah. so they act they're what they call um they're, they're low that just runs they must run generation so they run when they run and so they largely act as a demand reduction so do they have a slightly different price because they're greener or they're, they're effectively price takers yeah right so they they just run when they run and they take the pool price now what happens in reality is that they have a series of contractual arrangements as to all of the generators around their load, which can actually change the price. But simplistically, they all receive the pool price. Fantastic. So um, obviously, um, the renewable is coming into the marketplace is quite disruptive to that marketplace. And so it's, you know, because of, because of the fact that they generate... Um, you know, they obviously generate electricity when it's very low price, or possibly even not needed. Yes, so they run when they have to run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as we get more renewables in the system, you will see that, say, in Southwest Victoria or in, or in South Australia, when it's windy, the pool prices are very low. Yeah. So what happened over the last couple of months? It's been a confluence of factors, Tom, that has made a, a, a difference to the way energy has priced in the last few months. Um, there's been some physical factors such as 
there have been some significant outages of some of the major coal-fired mm-hmm. generation units in Victoria. Yep. Both Luang A and Yulorn has had the units. They're a bit old, are they? And they're very and old, they yeah. And I suppose they don't want to spend lots of money on them because their future is perhaps uh, on the nose a bit at the moment? Well, because their future <laughs> has been uncertain by some policy and regulatory inertia, you might say, around renewables over the last 10 years, you know, it would be a brave shareholder who spends two or $300 million to upgrade a plant that may not be yeah. popular in future. So there's been outages of major plant. There has been um, reductions in coal mining in Hunter Valley, New South Wales, mostly due to flooding events. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's a short-term issue. And then from a gas perspective... We have seen globally a rise in gas prices, largely driven by Ukrainian events and a slowdown of Russian export of gas. So global LNG prices have gone up, and our large-scale Queensland-based LNG exporters have been pushing gas into the market. Yeah, and so we could just go into that for a minute, because gas... Uh, obviously, we see in the the media that um, people are calling that, you know, it's our gas, so... We, why don't we set the price domestically for our own use and then export what we don't need and all that sort of stuff? We're, obviously, the gas is set by sort of a, a global commodity price mechanism. Yeah, it's what's it's what's known as an LNG netback price. So yeah. it's effectively the price at which you would bring gas back from a global market and deducting the shipping costs and the LNG conversion costs to a domestic natural gas price. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like in the beef industry saying, right, well, all domestic beef is going to be cheaper than the export beef. Yeah. And and it just would be a nightmare. Like, it it would just... Well, it would be a market intervention of some significance. Yeah. Um, And it's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. And we're not short of gas. No. We... Most of the LNG in Queensland comes from coal seam gas in the Surat Basin and around Condebrae and Roma and these areas. And those those developments have only really occurred because of the demand for LNG. There are three major LNG plants on Curtis Island at Gladstone, mm-hmm. and they each export very significant quantities of gas under long-term contracts to, to Malaysia, to Japan, to China, mostly. Yeah, ship it. They ship it, yeah. Yep. yeah. And so, um, so... So we're not we're not short of gas domestically, but most of our gas does go offshore. Um one of the issues has been that because the coal-fired generators in recent months have been not operating at full capacity, because renewables has been um, relatively low because it hasn't been seasonably attractive at the moment, it hasn't been that windy, and because we've had a cold start to winter, a lot more gas has been pulled out of the system for usage in gas-fired generation and for domestic consumption. Yeah, okay. So the gas prices are pushed up. So, you know, just basically gas works. You want it, you pay for it. Yep, exactly. And and at the moment, the gas price is expensive, So yeah. uh, and that's forcing um, yeah. these issues. There is an argument to say that perhaps we could have what people have talked about is a domestic reservation policy, which yep. is reserving a percentage of the gas produced for domestic Because it's usage. an essential sort of... Because it's an essential service. But then you start to get into a, a debate about... Um, manipulating price. You're yep. effectively asking people to take a discounted price on something they could otherwise sell for a higher price. Yep. Yeah, putting a floor price on wool, for instance. Yeah, it, opens up, <laughs> it opens up a Pandora's box of issues. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's fascinating. So, Justy, in the, um, obviously we're moving towards renewable energy and yep. um, there's those peaks and troughs. The batteries are obviously talked about. Batteries and, are interesting. And, and quite honestly, <clears throat> I just, I find it completely um, dumbfounding to think that we could produce enough battery capacity to take the 
take the moments where we've got a surplus energy and put them into the moments where we've got a deficit of energy. I mean, it's it's a really big ask, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's one of many solutions, and I think there's a lot of noise about the renewable sector and the battery sector, and that people think that it's a one-size-fits-all. The reality is we need a range of fuel options for the provision of our power. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the challenges that renewable energy has had in Australia is that in large part, a lot of the geographies in which renewables are attractive to build, southwestern Victoria, western New South Wales, northern Victoria for solar, these are areas of the grid which haven't traditionally been very strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our power has been produced historically in places like the Hunter Valley or the Latrobe Valley. Large transmission has taken that generation into the major markets of Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide or wherever it is. And then the network has sort of um, like a spider web outwards to areas of... Um, of need from that. Of need from that. Yeah. And into, say, Western Victoria, there's not a lot of need historically... For out, large, out large amounts of power. Yeah. yeah. So the net the network runs... And so the network is a, effectively a tapering exercise. Mm. It's a bit, like a, a bit like a major highway. And that's quite different in Europe, isn't it? Where well, it works the same it's way, but the power based. power usage all over the countryside is higher. Correct, you've got more large centres of, of demand. Yeah, yeah. whereas we don't so much because of our geography. Well, that's why we get brownouts on the end of the lines down at yeah. you know <laughs> in, down, the, down in, the more, yeah. in the more regional areas, which <laughs> yeah. probably listeners know a bit, bit about. So the challenge we've got at the moment is we've got significant renewable capacity being produced in areas where the network is not sufficient to. Um, fully dispatch it in the way it should be and that will take time to change Yeah, and it's expensive to change So, is, I mean, um, is that being thought out really well? I mean, it just seems to me that, you know um, if a company can get a heap of cash together they can build a wind farm or a power state or a solar farm wherever they like is, and, and there hasn't been a lot of planning thought into getting the power back into the grid. We've got problems in up at Mildura with solar farms and I know that there's one here at South Mortlake at the moment that's still, farm, not, yeah. still not connected to the grid. And that's a, and that's mostly due to a constraint of capacity. So those assets, if who, they're who operating... Who plans all that? Well, it hasn't been terrifically well planned. And that is that is changing. So yeah. various state governments have now announced what they're calling RESs, Renewable Energy Zones. And the point of that is not so much to plan the renewable generation, it's to ensure that there's a sufficient and shared network of mm-hmm. new um, transmission that will allow for the export of that power from those areas. And that saves, in theory, that's going to save individual um, renewable generators building their own lines all over the countryside. Yeah. Which, as we've seen in certain areas, every new generator is building its own transmission. That's what these zones are designed to try and coordinate. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I suppose. Which I think is a good idea. So there's a, there's a, there is there's been a lack of planning and probably government regulation on how power you know these renewable plants get built. I, I sort of think I think the growth the growth of renewables has been fairly rapid. Yeah. And therefore it's it's overtaken in some ways the yeah, fair enough. planning of the networks. A bit the, like a new suburb being built and not enough schools being put in on the roads. Yeah, to some extent. Up. Yeah. The other thing that it's easy to overlook is that in order to build new capacity and new transmission. Someone has to pay for that, for a start. Um, these are 50-year life assets. Mm-hmm. Um, they require extraordinary amounts of environmental approvals, of community engagement, of um, visual uh, approval. And 
and then they have to obviously have the easements through, might be farmland, it might be industrial land, it might yeah. be urban land. So they take a long time to put in place and the regulatory oversight of that is quite significant. And probably as a consequence of all that, they go to areas which are, you know, uh, where, where there's fewer people, fewer, larger holdings, so it's simpler to... In theory, yeah. yeah to, and so we see yeah. wind farms perhaps out on the end of the grid rather than closer to the population where the, where it's being where the where the grid has capacity to take it away and yeah i mean the, the the challenge for wind farms particularly has been what you call visual amenity mm. and as you know as a farmer in the in the region that there are a number of people who love wind farms, generally the people who have them and the yeah. people who don't. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> people have to look at them, don't they? Yeah, ka-ching, ka-ching, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of I'm sure there are a lot of school fees being paid by wind farms. Yeah. Mm. And so um and I well I just uh, I feel that, you know, solar farms down the side of railway stations on uh, railway lines, sorry, and um you know, wind farms closer to um, urban areas would make a little bit more sense but obviously then it's really difficult difficult to get approvals get approvals because there's so many people um, that are visually affected by it or have yeah yeah. and and then they still need to be able to be um, within a certain proximity to to decent sized transmission Let's go green, but not in my neighbourhood. That's the view. (laughs) Having said that, you wouldn't necessarily want to live next to a brown coal power station either. No, no, that's right. No, (laughs) probably worse. So what does Blue Pool Energy do? Tom, Blue Pool is... Well, Blue Pool is a name for my business, so I'm I'm an individual corporate advisor to to people operating within the sector. My clients are a range of different uh, types of energy um, participants. Mostly they are large infrastructure funds who are seeking to invest in the space um, to put long-term investments into either renewable assets, possibly transmission and distribution assets, um, various other forms of infrastructure within the space. Um, I do some work for one of the state governments at the moment on a major transmission project um, which they're seeking to build. And that's, by way of example, that's taking... It's going to take about three years for the various development to occur, and then it'll take another three or four years to build it. So these things can't be yeah. can't be done overnight. It takes a long time to change. So can you talk more about what that is? Or this is the Marinus project, yeah, which is right. the second subsea cable project between Tasmania and Victoria. Yeah, and it's designed to um, allow for the increased amount of hydro-based generation from Hydro Tasmania to be dispatched to the mainland. Yeah, and so uh, hydro energy is also, um, it's a bit like asphalt power, isn't it? You can turn it on and off. You can. It can be very flexible. You can have what's called pump storage. Yep. So you effectively release water when the power prices are high. Yep. And then when power prices are low, you can pump it back up to a gradient that you can release it again. Yep. Okay. In an ideal model. Yeah. So and there's a significant ability to increase the capacity of the hydro being produced in Tasmania but at the moment there's not enough transmission to evacuate. You know you hear a few myths out in the in the world you know about um, renewable not being financially competitive what's your opinion about that? Historically that was true now that's not true so renewables and you have to be careful what you compare. Yeah, I'll copy but the, it, of course. the marginal cost of renew, new renewable solar and battery, solar and um, wind in Australia is is more competitive than coal or gas. Right, and that's okay. because the two things have happened: the cost of the equipment, 
whether it be wind turbine blades or solar panels, the cost has fallen dramatically over the last 10 years. The cost has fallen dramatically. The capacity of the assets has got bigger, so they're better at doing what they do. And because we've got an ageing fleet of older generation in Australia, it's starting to become more expensive. So in that pool market I described earlier, renewables start to become competitive. Yeah, okay. Now, the challenge of renewables, of course, is they only run 30 40% of the time. Yeah, so how do we fill the, fill the gaps? You know, because I think you said before that I think you need a portfolio. Part, a part of the... But they are. You need yeah. a portfolio of options. Yeah. I think if we can if we can release new hydro from Tasmania and from the expanded snowy scheme, that's certainly one aspect of what you might call a baseload mm-hmm. generation. Batteries will play a part in helping to smooth the peaks of demand, particularly in the evenings, if you can charge them at points of excess renewable capacity and then dispatch them when there's higher demand. That's a a positive thing. But I think my personal view, and not everyone agrees with this, is there's a role for gas as a transition fuel... Yeah, for quite a long time. ...to moving us away from coal into renewables. Now, gas is not ideal. It's obviously still a carbon emitter, but it's a lot better than coal. Yeah, so you get to the stage where you're sort of short of power and bugger it, we'll have to turn the gas on. Well, it, sort of, you, you can know, you can build it in capacity, and yep. you can you can start it quickly. Yeah, and as you know, there's a there's a power station outside Mord Lake, which is one of Origin's gas fired. It only runs about five to ten percent of the time. Yeah, and that's price based. And so, what is the fluctuation in price? You know, because it's uh, people know what their power bills are, but this wholesale well, power it price. Can, it's at the moment it's quite high. At the moment it's about three or four hundred dollars a megawatt hour. Yep depending on renewables, particularly. If it's a windy week in South Australia, that number comes off. Um, the power price can go to zero, and go, but it can go to negative, and it can go as high as $15,000 a megawatt hour. So negative saying stop generating it. Um, why do they go to negative? Or does it go negative in different regions? It goes negative the- in different regions, mostly in South Australia. So how many different regions get different prices? There are all of the eastern states. They're all linked, but they all have a a separate price pool for the different states. Yeah. Western Australia is its own structure. There's no link, there's no power link between Western Australia and the eastern states right? Okay. Of, of any sort. So it has to be on its own. It can't say we're a bit short, we'll get pinched some from somewhere else. No, yeah. it has its yeah. own arrangement. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and so, yeah, renewable energy is now obviously a, an investment opportunity for people to... You know, like it was okay. it before it was sort of government helped, wasn't it? And and it, and that's sort of going, or is it still? I think for a, for a while there were obligations placed on the retailers of electricity right. that they would source a minimum amount or a certain percentage of their load from renewable sources. Yep. And that acted effectively as a subsidy. Yep. So they were obligated to go and contract with the renewable generators for dispatch. Now, um, a renewable generator in a good area with reasonable transmission connection is largely a standalone exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a number of, because of the nature of the assets is long-term, they are, people have got much, much better at predicting the weather events and the, therefore the output of them. They're attractive for long-term infrastructure investors. So the wholesale companies do a bit of that themselves, do they? They have a sort of a calendar forward. They can compare how much power they produced this month last year and... Yeah, they're very... They're good at doing it. They're all very, that. very good at doing it. Yeah. 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 And so most of them they're speculating themselves internally about what the price might be in a month's time. A little bit. We have, again, as I said earlier, you have generators on one side and you have retailers on the other. What's actually happened is the larger players have become what we call gen tailors. 
So the origins of the world and the AGLs and the Alintas and the Energy Australias mm-hmm. all own both retail loads mm-hmm. and they own generation. So they create a bit of a natural hedge between the two. And they sell it to themselves, sort of. Yeah. 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 They, or they contract to do that. So, Justy, that's um, present in the past and how it's all come together. What about the future? Where, where are we going to, you know, to be able to reduce the amount of carbon emissions that comes out of the energy sector, which is you know, the highest emitter of um, carbon-based global warming gases? And um, where, whereabouts do you think the future is going to go and how are we going to generate enough e- electricity? Are we going to stop using as much electricity, do you think? And I think oh, we're actually going to use more, Tom. I think that... Um, governments almost globally, particularly in Western economies, are starting to encourage consumers to use more electricity and less gas, for instance, mm-hmm. at the household level, because ultimately they are of the belief that they can convert the electricity system to being renewable. So they're pushing people to go... Whereas gas more, is not ga- renewable. Gas, gas is always going to be gas. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that will manifest itself in a higher penetration of electric vehicles Um, and I think what will occur is that in in smart households for instance and in an idealised sense you'll be able to have solar on the roof of your house you'll you'll have an electric vehicle that will be able to charge itself from the house or if it's been parked somewhere else charging all day you'll be able to bring it home and plug it into your house at night so that effectively you'll be able to charge your house from the electric vehicle in the evening, okay. so there'll, there'll be an integration of that thing. Oh, so the solar solar, pan, um, solar panels in your house will generate the electricity and yep. put it into the grid, and your car can take it out of the grid. So it's like a peer-to-peer sort of. Yeah, thing. I think there are there are people, for instance, who are parking their car electric vehicles in multi-story car parks in the city. They're availing of free charging, and as the batteries in vehicles get bigger and more efficient. In theory, for a small household, you'd be able to plug your car in at night back into your house. Right. To d- yeah, yeah. yeah to so it's, so the there's, there's lots of ways. That's quite prevalent now in Japan. There's quite a lot of smaller households. Instead of it's having a, 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 a another battery system on the, attached to the side of the house, you just use the car. It's a mobile battery. Yeah. yeah. yeah so people amazing. will start to think of it not just as a vehicle but as a mobile battery. Yeah. 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 Battery yeah. and wheels. So I think, I think at the domestic level, you will see far more efficient households. I think... Um, you know, that there's an old statement that says that the, the cheapest source of new generation by a huge factor is actually energy efficiency. Getting more efficient in the usage of energy is the biggest saving that we could ever achieve. And whether that's through insulation, whether that's through smarter appliances, whether it's through just people being more aware of their usage patterns. Yep. And I think people are more broadly already people now talk about energy and energy prices whereas they never used to that's right. think about yeah, it yeah, yeah. Um, that will drive behaviours and change but, and also as the price goes up you know do people flick the power off at home a little bit more you know I think they're more conscious of it yeah, yeah. so yeah. they don't leave the lights on all night not that if they've got yeah. LED light bulbs that makes much difference and I think but smarter usage of, of cooling particularly in summer yeah. will be important um, and whether that's how, better yeah. building products, better, better glass, better insulation. Yep. It makes a huge difference. Yep, yep. And so generation itself, um, we talked a little bit about nuclear before. Um, that, that could come back onto the... onto the Potentially. Yeah. It's not a quick fix by any means. No, because we're talking 10 years to build a... I would, a large-scale plant, yeah. 
Having said that, there are smaller scale nuclear options, which I, I gather companies such as Westinghouse are producing almost containerized yeah. smaller options. I'm not fully Rolls Royce conversant with those. Rolls Royce have one. Yeah. You can buy, get a container with a nuclear reactor in it. Yeah. 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 Might not be popular with your neighbours, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the, I think the other... Well, they work in submarines, don't they, pretty successfully? They do, yeah. jet, jet engines. They, the other area which is being talked about globally and particularly in Australia is the production of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, hydrogen, as you would know, is produced from breaking down water into hydrogen and oxygen atoms. It, it, and if, it's, if the electrolyzer used to create hydrogen is run on renewable energy, then it's a totally green... So it's a battery. Operation. It can act as a battery for renewable energy. Yeah. Now, there are some problems with hydrogen, though, aren't there? Mm-hmm. The Hindenburg comes to mind for most people. It's, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's going back a fair way. <laughs> no, you don't generally want to set fire to it. No. no. So, um, yes, it, it's volatile. It's You need to compress it very heavily to get the same sorts of um, energy output that you would from, say, natural gas or LNG. So it's not a dense energy it's product. It's not as dense. Yeah. Yeah, you okay. need to... In order to move it around, <coughs> mostly on ships, you need to drop it to, I think it's about minus 260 degrees, whereas LNG gets um, liquefied, I think, at about minus 70. So it's you need some very clever yeah. equipment and you need some very clever transportation options. And it, it also goes through things too, doesn't it, hydrogen? I think, you know, if you put hydrogen in a tank, a steel tank for long enough, there won't be you, much that you left. You do eventually. Yeah. I think what's what's... <laughs> proposed in a lot of cases is that hydrogen can be attached to a effectively made into ammonia yeah and then moved as ammonia and obviously that's useful for fertilizing in you yeah, can i think a couple of sure. um, toyota and honda and yeah. um yeah some australian csiro did work yeah. on that so australia is extremely well positioned not just to potentially create a hydrogen industry for domestic production and usage it's also very well positioned to be a significant exporter of hydrogen and ammonia type products. And I, and I suppose that's Asia. where those opportunities for a um, renewable power plant why, even away from the grid where, 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 there's, where there's good quantity of water. Yes, you need to be near a deep water port effectively. I suppose, yeah. So there's that a, would help. a number of projects proposed in Gladstone, Newcastle, um, Townsville, I think there's three proposed at Bell Bay in Tasmania. For hydrogen? For hydrogen, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and major players are looking at them. Origin are looking at them. Woodside, um, the Fortescue Group are very active in trying to promote this tr- move to hydrogen. The challenge with hydrogen at this stage is in order for it to be economic, the energy cost needs to be quite low. Yep. And at the moment, it's not. Yep. And, you know, for the listeners, hydrogen, you're, you're still burning it, but there's no carbon involved. There's no carbon involved. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very good. So there are a lot of, a lot of spin-offs that, um, you know, from having high power prices, that the society has to adjust, and it's very disruptive, isn't it? I agree, it can be, and I think we're seeing, even across industry, at the um, commercial industrial scale, energy users, increasingly those groups are seeking to become a bit more self-sustaining in their energy usage. So where there are significant rooftops in an industrial installation, you're seeing yeah, solar you're go seeing, on, yeah, yeah. you're seeing batteries being embedded, you're seeing um, even standalone generation yep. options being put in place. All right. Yeah. Uh, Justy, I worry a little bit that, um, you know, that whether it's an ideology or sort of coming from the government that there's a lot of push for electric cars and the, um, the 
marketplaces take them up and I think you know if you power your electric car in New South Wales at the moment 80% of the power came from coal fired generation Um, so you might feel good about your electric car and it doesn't have an exhaust pipe but you're still burning coal to drive it aren't you really Um, indirectly indirectly yeah Um, but you're saving you know I've got a Toyota parked out the front which burns a lot of diesel so it's so I mean just I'm just replace it it's a good thing yeah I'm just wondering um, you know we're trying to change the grid over to renewable and get and remove carbon um, emission from our um, electric generation have we really taken into consideration that we need to produce enough electricity to power all the cars and the trucks and all everything as well I think the well, that must be a lot of power. I think the, the sense extra that needs to be found. Yeah, I think the sense of what we're doing is right. I think in you know in an ideal world, if we could all go back and produce our energy from renewable sources, we probably would. Yeah. Um, but it's you know it's a bit like a it's a bit like a, a shipping tanker. It takes a long time to turn around. Mm. We've got legacy investments in what were attractive coal-fired plants, but the reality is to change it takes time, and just to leap in one direction can cause um, flaws in what is a market system. Yeah, necessity becomes the mother of invention, sort of, doesn't it? Yeah, I think... Get it out there and go for it. Correct. Industries, um, energy producers, energy consumers are getting smarter about how they go about it. Yeah. And if you create the the desire for them to change their behaviours and their usage patterns and the way they think about energy, you'll get to the result much quicker. Yeah, so Justy, um, you know, we're, uh, that's a great chat. I'm just wondering what sort of mistakes have you made in your uh, career? Made numerous mistakes, Tom, but um, I was trying to think of one that might be quite funny rather than too serious. Um, <laughs> so you can sort of avoid, you know, any embarrassment by using no, I don't your humour. I don't mind being embarrassed. Um, <laughs> when I was a young graduate in my banking career many years ago at National Australia Bank, um, we, I was working on a set of accounts and I was the, you know, the very junior junior guy and we were looking after the JB Weir uh, stockbreaking firms accounts my my boss and my various bosses and one evening we were um, we're putting some sort of computer link in between some sort of link between two of their accounts and this is the days when computers were pretty they were pretty basic stuff this is back in the early 90s mm-hmm. and myself and a couple of other blokes were trying to work out how to set up this link between these accounts and as I said the computer software was pretty vanilla in those days and we had to fill out a series of fields and we got to the final field and the you know the thing we were trying to do wouldn't work without filling out this final field and no one quite knew what to do and so one of the guys said just fill it up with a whole lot of nines it'll be fine just type in a whole lot of nines so we hit radio and we hit enter and the whole thing took off it was fine so the next morning when i came to the office there was a bit of a bit of fireworks going on in my boss's office and he was on the phone getting a bit of a rocket and someone overnight had transferred $999 million from one of J.B. Weir's accounts into another one. <laughs> and the CEO of the firm had been on the phone to Don Argus, the then CEO of NAB, and it had filtered down to us, and I was called in for a bit of a bit of a bollocking from the boss for making this error, but it was quite funny, but yeah. it all got reversed well, quite he, easily. He, but he should have had his training a bit better, shouldn't he? It, it was a complete lack of training in those days, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, are, what are your proud achievements? Um... I think in a long career of dealing with energy customers and relationships, and my role over the years has been to manage the large relationships, I've been pleased with the fact that I suppose over 20-odd years, a number of those people who have started life as clients or colleagues 
have ended up being friends and I've dealt with them for mm-hmm. 15, 20 years. And some of my closest friends are people who started off as clients many, many years ago. So that preservation of relationships and remaining relevant in the conversation to people has been something I've been proud of. Yeah, very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously mentors have... You've got mentors in your life that you... Yeah. Um, look up to and... Yeah, probably probably a few. I've never had a particularly direct mentor. I've had some terrific bosses over the years, some mm-hmm. better than others. Um, and I think the overarching theme of where I've thought they have been terrific is when they have reminded you actually maybe things in domestic life or the family are more important than the work and there might be circumstances and there have been circumstances where we've been outrageously busy on a transaction or deals or something to do with a client and we you know, I remember when I had my first child mm. I, you know, I was given some time off by the global head of investment banking he said just, just get away from the office spend some time and deal with that and I thought that was a terrific message to send that it's easy to forget what's important yeah. in your life particularly yeah. you know young bankers get no, they get the sort almost of psycho, almost religion about the whole thing and <laughs> work until four in the morning and all that yeah. stuff. It was really important. And good bosses will remind you that what's actually important is the other things in your life, not yeah. just the work. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on to the Raw Egg Podcast. It's been fascinating. And Thank I'm you, sure uh, the listeners are going to enjoy you know, hearing about the energy sector. So thank you very much and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. The Raw Ag Podcast is a collaboration between Tamani Rangus and the Ace Radio Network. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag Podcast, make sure you leave a review or rate us on your favourite podcast app.